Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is the word of the Lord. I want you guys to all stand through the whole minute. I'm just playing. You guys can take a seat. <laughs> uh, my name's Matt, and uh, I'm one half of the uh, Sticky Bandits. Uh, me and Joshua are rocking the Home Alone beanies this morning. So, uh, no, I'm just kidding. My name is Matt, and I am actually, I am so overjoyed to be a community leader here uh, and also a part of this teaching team. Um, it's been truly amazing. I feel like I... For whatever reason, every Advent I get I get one of the slots, and I feel like I'm just like so joyful. Uh, Dan's talking about joy next week, but I'm really joyful uh, to be able to teach. Um, so, if you guys haven't been here the last couple of weeks, this is our third week uh, in Advent, uh, and so over the past couple of weeks, we've gone over hope and peace. <laughs> Thank you, Will. Christmas, hope and and peace. Uh, so to quickly recap, Weston uh, opened us up in week one, and he shared that hope in Jesus is more than merely just this will to hope. Uh, rather, it's like this lifelong journey of learning of God's continual restoration of his people uh, that was made perfect in the coming of Jesus. It's in Jesus that we draw our hope from. Nothing in our finite world can give us true hope. Weston did some great work and taught us about the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, and I highly, highly encourage you to go back and listen to this one, because uh, it's more than just a random list of names that we see in Matthew 1, um, but it, it's, it represents a truly broken and corrupt people that Jesus came to restore to hope that was a part of his bloodline. Uh, so he brought hope to a jaded bloodline, <laughs> and his character is unchanged today. So as we reflect on our circumstances, we know that regardless of what the past, what we've had done to us in the past, or what we've experienced in the past, God is restoring our hope. And then last week, Alexis shared uh, that Jesus came as Emmanuel. Again, like Shua said, not Emmanuel, but God with us uh, to restore us to peace. Uh, so from creation, we were placed into a barren wasteland, as the Hebrews called. You guys remember the, the Hebrew word that Alexis taught us last week? Yes. Tovu vovu hu. Um, and it's, it's one of the arcs of the biblical narrative uh, is that God was aiming to restore his people out of this wasteland into peace. And through the law, through the kings, through the prophets, the judges, there was never really an absolute time of peace. So we only see that when God incarnate, who is Jesus, came, was born. And that's when we saw true peace. So this week... We get to talk all about love. Everybody say love. That was like, you're love. How would you say love if you were sitting by your high school crush? You know, say love. Like love. 
I like <laughs> what it's such a great word and it's really easy to define, right? No, it's not. I actually believe that if we surveyed the room and asked what love is, we would all have a completely different answer. The only people who would have the same answer is our kids over there and they would say, I love mommy because that's who they love. And every night when I go to scratch my kids back and they yell, I want mommy, I don't love you, I love mommy. I realize that. But it's not even, like when they're at that stage, sorry, this is a little tangent, but when they're at that stage, I don't even, like that doesn't offend me. It's when they're actually calm and they're like, hey dad, like I know you wanna scratch my back, but I actually love mom and I, and I want her. And I'm like, that actually hurts. So now what I, what, now what I do is I go, all right, but if I go to Titus, I'm like, all right, Titus, good night, man. I know you want mommy, you want her to scratch your back, but I love you, bye. And you know, I try to get it in before he actually says, like, I want mommy. But anyways, that's, I don't know if that's wise parenting. But, um, but yeah, love, it's this, it's, this, it's this word that is, it's pretty difficult to define. But even if we look at like our music, think about our music. I need some, I might need some congregational participation on this one, okay? So in the 90s, there was this, song that was made famous by Will Ferrell and Chris Kattan and SNL, and it asked the question, what is love? And what was the response? No, no, I need, I need more participation than that. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me, right? What does that even mean? And then we got the, the OG, the greatest Christmas caroler of all time, Nat King Cole. He sang the song, and it goes, I need some help on this one. It goes, L is What about O? And V? Ordinary. E is even more than anyone. Yes, 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 yes. Sure, it's happening. It's happening. Yeah, no, by no means. Um, and then, of course, we got all my 2,000 babies. Where are you at? The Beebs just told us that all he needs is what? Somebody to love. I just need somebody to love. And then probably the most famous, and I'm going to need some help from my boomers out here. The Beatles. All you need is what? All you need is love. All you need is love. So all of these songs elicit this different reaction to what we may view as love. So it would naturally lead us to ask these questions. How do we interpret love? Is love merely just being tolerant of the opposing views? Is love a feeling? Is it an action? Does love just blossom inside of us? Is love reserved for the other? What about self-love? Or maybe more common in our culture, self-care. Can I love one person more than I love the other? Can I fall out of love? Now, this seems to be a common question regarding marital love, and it could even turn into a statement and the two couple, or a man and a woman say, I just, I just fell out of love. Is it, is it a noun? Is it a verb? Well, we know that. That's Webster's Dictionary says it's both. So there's, there's one answer to our questions. But if we truly reflect on the word love, it's loaded with uncertainty. 
According to this guy's name is Francis Crick. I don't know if you guys ever heard of him, but he was a British molecular biologist, biophysicist, and neuroscientist, most notably associated with the Nobel Peace Prize for discovering the structure of DNA. If I discovered the structure of DNA, I would not do anything for the rest of my life. But <laughs> that's not what Francis Crick did. Uh, he wrote this book called Astonishing Hypothesis. And in this book, he believes that he may have found the reason that we love or even experience all the other hosts of emotions that we feel as humans. Uh, he pens in his book, it's going to be up here, you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories, your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are all in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cell cells and their associated molecules. So the crick would go on to argue that love, as defined by humans, is no more than just a chemical response. So simply put, we have no soul, there isn't an afterlife, and we are merely existing as fleshly beings on earth. And why are we having these chemical responses? Crick would say that our ancestors had, had them as a means to survive. All people who didn't have those chemical reactions would indeed just die off. For example, the reason that we as humans say things like, oh, love matters, or people matter, or even believe in this unified good is all a means to survive. Now, love, according to Crick, can be boiled down to a means to the preservation of the body and a preservation of our species. Now, if the preservation of our body was the ultimate goal, then I would say Crick would be right. Maybe love is just a chemical reaction instilled in us for survival. But this scientific view is just one of many ways <laughs> that we as humans aim to make sense of love. We do have this longing and an ache for authentic love that seems to be like beyond us. We see this play out even in our current cultural means of entertainment. So as an example, there's a show on Netflix called Love is Blind. How many of you guys have seen it? Oh, wow. Okay. So for those of you that uh, have not seen it, I mean, you're not missing out on much. But, but the basic premise is that uh, they have, the show has people meet one another, and at the end of a two-week period, at least two, maybe three weeks, they decide who they want to get engaged to and who they want to marry. Okay, so that in and of itself is, is kind of crazy. But to add to this experience, none of the contestants can see each other prior to engagement. And I, I, I promise you, this is a real show. This is, this is accurate. But the idea is that they will genuinely, without any filter, get to know and love their future soulmate for who they are, not based on their looks. Now, there's some value to that, but that's not, that's not the point of, of the example. So there, we could spend some time discussing the potential dangers that will take place in a relationship because of that methodology, but that's not the point. The point is the creator of the show, his desire to see if love can be expressed this way is not much different than Crick's desire to explain love through the chemical reactions in our physiology. Again, we, we're all on this journey to discover what love is, what it means, how to express it, how to receive it. The danger is, is that as we do this, 
as we manufacture our idea of love, our affections move to abstractions and we grow further and further from the original intent of love that the Creator has for us. We wander from the truth that before our own existence, before the existence of humanity, God had intimately loved us. Christian theology teaches that our Creator is a community of love, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He created everything, including you and I, to express and multiply that love. The foundations of existence are love. We won't know and understand love until we are submitted to and in right relationship with the source of love, God himself. Which is, the, which is what the incarnation is all about. The God who is love embodied himself in flesh to save us from our warped ideas of love. So now we ask the question, what is biblical love? So to begin to answer this, we will... We're going, to be doing some, uh, we're going to be doing a little bit of study this morning, all right? We're going to get into some Hebrew, uh, some Hebrew words from the Old Testament as kind of our, oh, okay, as our introduction to love. Now, I want to note, I am in no way a Hebrew scholar, so I'm going to try my best to pronounce these words as best as I can. So, uh, but throughout Israel's history, uh, Yahweh's desire to be with his, he desired to be with his people as he communed with Adam and Eve in the garden, as he met with Moses at the burning bush and met with him multiple times on Mount Sinai. And God even wanted to commune with his people so much that he instructed Moses to build this tabernacle in where God would actually dwell and his spirit would dwell and speak to them and be with them and commune with them. But though God was desiring to commune and show true love to his people, it was seemingly not enough for them as they wandered and sought love in various forms. Hmm. So the Israelites, they wrote their own rules for loving God and others. And even in that, God showed his unwavering love culminated in the birth of his son, Jesus, the holy God wrapped in flesh, sent not only to redeem the world from sin, but to showcase, to be the example of what love is and actually how to love, how we love one another. Christmas tells us, this season tells us intuitively what our heart knows to be true, that we are not aimlessly wandering around hoping to get it right as we invent new ideas about love. This would ultimately lead us, I believe, to confusion, to discontentment, to hurt and pain of not only ourselves but of the other. Rather, Christmas proves that love isn't a chemical reaction in our brain, but pre-exists the world and is redeeming us through Jesus. So this is where we set our sights for the remainder of the teaching. The incarnation of Jesus, simply put, is the advent of love. So like the English language, um, the Bible has many different words for love with layers of meaning. So today... Again, there's many, but today we will examine two Hebrew words that express love in the Old Testament in order to help us understand John's words in 1 John chapter 4 as it relates to love. I'm going to take a drink before I say these words. Those two words are chesed. Everyone say chesed. You got to get it right here. Chesed. 
Very good. And ahava. Very good. So first we're going to examine the word chased. If I asked you, anybody in here, to describe God, how would you do it? We have an A, we have an a student sitting over here. Specifically, though, if I asked you to summarize, God, summarize God's character in a phrase, how would you do that? That would be difficult. We've heard it, I mean, in our own cultural means of worship or just in general, like, you know, God loves all. Like, he just loves all. Or maybe a, a specific um, community of, of believers say, no, God loves his elect. God loves his chosen people. We've heard, you know, God's love is reckless. We've heard God's love is constant. We've heard God's love is all these things. It's, it's difficult. And the same was true for these Hebrew writers of the Old Testament. But as these writers, as these, as these authors pondered the mystery of God, they repeatedly described God's character in this way. He was compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And that's from Exodus 34. So the word love in this particular text, you see up there, it, up there is, is the word chased. This is a difficult word to describe in the English language because it combines the idea of love, generosity, and enduring commitment all in one. Now, Dr. Tim Mackey of the, ba of the Bible Project summarizes chased like this. Chased describes an act of promise-keeping loyalty that is motivated by a deep personal care. A deep personal care. The text mentioned before, Exodus 34, demonstrates this idea perfectly. Moses had just interceded on the behalf of the Israelites after like the millionth time that they turned away from God and used these words to actually describe God's character. So this particular uh, turning away from God that the Israelites um, had just done may have been the most offensive to God than previous rebelliousness. There's been times that they doubted God, but this time they actually made an idol to worship as opposed to God. So just as we, as we look behind this text in the rear view, God just delivered the Israelites from the oppressive rule of the Egyptians. You guys remember that story? There was plagues, right? Locusts. Turn the Nile to blood, right? We got it? We're all there? Okay, cool. That just happened. Then he promised them that they were going to go to this land that was flowing with milk and honey. It was going to be abundance. There was going to be life there. God was going to commune with them. And he was literally in the middle of giving Moses instruction to build the tabernacle for God to be with his people. That's, that's, that's what was happening. But while Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving these instructions for the tabernacle, the Israelites, like I said, constructed this golden calf to worship as they grew impatient with God. So I'm sure that most of us may be aware of this famous psychological experiment entitled the Stanford Marshmallow Study. You guys ever heard of it? It's, it's made... Um, well, the original study was conducted in the 70s, and it was conducted by this guy named Walter Michel, the psychologist, uh, but it's actually been replicated and kind of like brought back to life here in our, um, over the last couple years, where you've seen parents who give their, um, their kids like a marshmallow or some type of treat, and they say, hey, I'm going to go out of the room, 
And then when I come back, I'm going to give you, if they gave them two marshmallows, I'm going to give you four marshmallows. And then they videotape their kid as they struggle to try to like maintain some semblance so they don't uh, fall prey to the temptation of eating the two when they can get the four, right? We've seen that. But the original, in the original study, Michelle, he took preschoolers from this nursery at Stanford and he split them into three experimental groups. And for, for them, the medium they used was a marshmallow or a pretzel. Who would choose a pretzel over a marshmallow? Anyways, um, they would. Then, so the preschoolers were then instructed that if they could call the, that they could call the prof, uh, the professors back in the room by ringing a bell if they wanted, but they just get what was in front of them. So essentially, they were sitting there. They had the food in front of them. If they rang the bell, the professor would come in. They could only get that. But if they waited the allotted amount of time, they get more. Right? We get it. Now, the professors would ask them questions to, to make sure that they understood. They would say, can you tell me, which do you get to eat if you wait for me to come back by myself? Then they would ask, but if you want to, how can you make me come back? If you ring the bell and bring me back, which do you get? Then the experiment would, would begin. So these three groups were split up. The first group, actually, uh, they had toys and they had some things that they, that they, that they could play with. But they would have the actual marshmallow right in front of them. The second group was set up the same way, but the professors would prompt them to think about specific ideas. Now, the third group, they had all the same things. They had the toys. They had the professors prompting them, but they couldn't see the actual physical uh, treat there. So Michelle initially hypothesized that the children who saw the marshmallow in front of them would be more prone to delaying their gratification for more marshmallows. However, the rewards themselves served to increase the children's frustration and ultimately decreased the, the delay in gratification. The results actually show that not thinking about a reward enhances the ability to delay gratification rather than focusing on the future reward. So the, the kids in group three who didn't see it, they had a better job of actually getting the reward. But in fact, the researchers shared the ways, which I think is, this is the best part, in which the kids would grow frustrated and do various things to pass time. So they would make up quiet songs. They hid their heads in their arms. They pounded on the floor with their feet. They kept repeating what the reward was. I'm going to get four marshmallows. I'm going to get four marshmallows. And they said that they even prayed to the ceiling. They would say, God, please help me make this, get through this. But I think the most... Um, notable self-distractions technique, which I didn't even know this was possible, is that there was a little girl who rested her head, grew so frustrated, she rested her head, sat limp, relaxed herself, and actually fell asleep. No, that's, that's like miraculous. But there is a lot to take away from this, but I think it's best to reflect on the kid's inability to wait. It shows that waiting is an insanely difficult practice for us as humans. I mean, think about it. These three and four-year-olds, without much conditioning, constructed things in their mind to distract so the future would come faster, or they would just falter to the temptation and missed out on the true goal. So similar to the kids in that experiment, the Israelites constructed what they viewed would help them obtain a desired goal. Build a golden calf to worship, and then we can wait for Yahweh to be with them. Again, Moses is literally on Mount Sinai conversing with God. How he, and God is telling him and instructing him how he's going to dwell with his people. 
Yet the Israelites' desire for immediate gratification was stronger than their desire to be with God. Now, with this offense, God could have justly turned from his people, yet that would be against his character. Instead, God showed his chesed for the Israelites as the tabernacle was still constructed, and he still dwelt among them despite their selfish desire and longing to turn away from him. He deeply, deeply cared for these people, and he deeply, deeply cares for us. Another example of chesed in the is in the book of Ruth, as the author describes the relationship between Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Now, Ruth is a foreigner. She was married to an Israelite man who tragically died. Uh, His brother died, and Naomi's husband died as well. So Ruth is just left with her mother-in-law, and Naomi had nothing to give Ruth. Naomi even goes as far to tell Ruth to just go back to her people. I have nothing, I have nothing to give. I have nothing for you. So Naomi actually interpreted that the famine and the death of her husband and her sons as a sign of divine displeasure with her as she claims the Lord's hand has gone out against me. But Ruth stayed with Naomi She stayed with her and honored her, though she had absolutely nothing to offer her. And guys, Ruth was young. She was late teens, early 20s. She could have gone on, remarried, had a whole life of her own. But yet, as as verse 14 describes, Ruth clung to Naomi. And this is the same verb used to describe marriage in Genesis. She clung to her. And Ruth 3.10, her kindness is described as chesed. It is a generous and unconditional chesed. It is important to note that the first usage of chesed was between God and his people. And the second was used amongst his people, amongst us. More on this in a moment. So now we'll go ahead and observe the word achava. Everyone say achava. Oh, that was weak. Um, so ahava can be summed up by the care or affection that one person shows another. So one example of ahava is that Abraham is that of Abraham for his son Isaac. This is parental love. Then God said to him, "Take your son, your only son, whom you love." This is in Genesis twenty-two. Two. Other examples include that of brotherly love, as displayed between Jonathan and David. Or even loyalty between political allies like Hiram and loved David. I just wrapped up this book uh, by Viktor Frankl called A Man's Search for Meaning. You guys ever read that, anybody? Yes. If you haven't, I wouldn't even be offended if right now you went on Amazon and ordered it because it is that good. Um, But uh, Frankl, who was a medical doctor and a PhD in psychology in Vienna during the early 1930s, wrote this book not only to share a story, but also provide a psychological analysis of what an inmate at a concentration camp may experience. Overall, he argues that once a man has lost his sense of meaning, that his chance of survival in the concentration camp would be limited, if not indefinite. Frankl Frankl spent over three years at three different concentration camps and recalled a time when he was getting tormented by the guards and an image of his wife came to mind to ease the physical and mental torment he was experiencing. 
He said, my mind still clung to the image of my wife. A thought crossed my mind. I didn't even know if she were still alive. I knew only one thing, which I have learned well by now. Love goes very far beyond the physical person of the beloved. It finds its deepest meaning in his spiritual being, his inner self. Whether or not he is actually present, whether or not he is still alive at all, ceases somehow to be of importance. Let's let that sink in for a moment. If we think about Frankl, this man experienced a, a lifetime of physical and mental, emotional, spiritual pain that we may not even experience in the span of three years. And it was his deep, deep affection and care for his wife, not even knowing if she was alive, that allowed Frankl to muster meaning to make it through that torment. So when he says love goes far beyond the physical person of the beloved, it carries a ton of weight. His expression of marital love moves beyond the physical. It actually moves him to strength. Love is more than an expression that we may or may not express when it feels right for us. Biblical marital love is not demanding or selfish. It's exact, it is the exact opposite. It's giving and it's selfless. Yet we see divorce rates at an all-time high. Marital love satirized on TV. I might have made that word up. I don't know, like satire. You know what I'm talking about? Masculinity and femininity undefined. We have moved far away from this type of marital love that Frankel describes. And it could be completely foreign to us. This type of marital love that is expressed seems to transcend our physical beings and is a genuine feeling of affection. That is why Hosea compares God's love for his people to a husband's ahava for his wife in Hosea 3. It is important to note that ahava is not merely a feeling, but it is an action. Like Moses recounts to the Israelites in Deuteronomy, because of God's achava for your ancestors, he brought you out of Egypt with great power. God, because of his love for his people, literally rescued them. He did not theoretically bring them out of Egypt <laughs> or promise that he would if they displayed perfect achava to one another. Rather, he just did. Love is now something to grasp, something to do. Love is an action expressed in the self sacrificial commitment to God and others. Now, with, it, with, it, with an understanding of these two ideas of love, we are now able to move from the abstract to the concrete. So now we can ask the question, how does Jesus define love? Simply put, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus defines love as self-sacrifice for the sake of the other. He then commands us to love God and our neighbor in this self-sacrificial way. So how do we do this? We observe his interaction with the Pharisees for guidance. In, in his response to the Pharisees questioning him about the greatest commandment, Jesus responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus, again, we're, this is teaching, right? We're going to get in this. Jesus is quoting a passage of scripture that the Jewish people have prayed for thousands of years, both day and night, called the 
Shema. Here it is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love, Ahava, the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So secondly, he quotes a passage from Leviticus as God is relaying to Moses his desire for the Israelites to commune with one another. Yahweh instructs Moses to tell the Israelites, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. This may be the most printed church merch of all time, but it's true. It should be. It carries a ton of weight. Because as simple as this phrase may be, we as followers of Jesus, we depend on this. We depend on the love of God and the love from our community. Again, we're no longer left up to the condition of our world to determine what love is. We've moved beyond that. Nor are we wandering aimlessly clinging to that which is hopeless. We see around us people who believe love is a means to fulfill selfish desire. And maybe we in this room are like this. I can recall uh, in Ashley and I's first year of marriage, uh, I was very manipulative. Uh, my internal self-preservation and selfishness was just at an all-time high. And as we tried to make decisions and plans for our present and even for our future, I, I leaned towards putting my desires first. I was not intent on being attuned to her needs and desires. I was really good at making it seem as though I was making efforts to accommodate her, yet my ideal outcome would have been my own desire. But by God's grace and marital counseling, uh, I was able to confess and see that what I was doing was in direct opposition to caring for her. And we can only understand love if we engage with the one who loved us first the creator who came as flesh to embody chesed and ahava, to not only stand in our place to atone for our sins, but to display for us what love is. So we return to the words of Jesus. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. So we return to the text for today as we close this out. Uh, I, if you guys uh, are open to John... Um, 1 John chapter 4, I'm actually going to read a little bit more just so we can kind of understand the context of this briefly. And I like what in, the, in my Bible, this is an NIV Bible, uh, the introduction says, John's, he, John filled simple words like light, love, which we're talking about today, and life with deep meaning. And in this letter, he elegantly explains the basic truths about Christian life. So where we're at in this letter that he's writing is there's been some denying of the incarnation of Jesus. So there's been, there's been a group of people who have said Jesus did not come in the flesh. Um, and so that is what John is addressing. So we're going to start, uh, I think on the screen we have it um, 7 through 12. I'm just going to start from 1. And John says, dear friends, do not believe every spirit. That's for us today. <laughs> But test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in flesh 
is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, ch- you dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you, this is important, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore they speak from the viewpoint of the world. And the world listens to them, but we are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. In verse seven up there, Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who knows love has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. But this is love Not that we love God, but that he loved us. Uh, Athanasius of Alexandria, which is the name, it's going to be the name of Lex and Joshua's next kid. Um, I'm just kidding. He wrote this book called uh, On, On the Incarnation, and he addresses an important understanding for us as followers of Jesus when it comes to the embodiment and the atoning death of Jesus. He writes, He did not offer the sacrifice on behalf of all immediately. He came. That's kind of nuts. Like, if you think about it, Jesus could have come and just died and been the sacrifice, and we could have been reconciled to him, yet he didn't do that. For if he had surrendered his body to death and then raised again at once, he would have ceased to be an object for our sense Instead of that, he stayed in his body and let himself be seen in it, doing acts and giving signs which showed him to be not only man, but also God the Word. So let's think about this. He walked this earth as God in flesh for 33 years. He talked with people. He taught lessons. He healed the sick. He intervened for the oppressed. He ate with sinners. And then, and then he suffered a brutal death so that we can be with him in eternity. The incarnation of Jesus showed us, you and I, how to love. So John takes this grand idea of love as an affection and an action and summarizes it in verse 10. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us first and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So here are the takeaways for today. God first loved us. He showed us this from creation. We do not have to aim to redefine what that means. We as followers of Christ should not be, if someone were to ask us what love is, we are not abstractly trying to just on the spot think of, oh man, I don't really know what love is. We can look to the text and we can look to one another and proclaim God's love. Number two, Jesus embodied chesed and ahava and was sent to commune among his people, no longer restricted to a mountain or a tabernacle or a temple. He was Emmanuel, God with us. And third, as we observe the perfect sacrificial love embodied in Jesus, we do the same.
to one another. So we as followers of Jesus, with even the bleakest understanding of who he is, have a definition of what love is that is counter to what society tells us. Like I said, we have a deep and personal care for one another. Well, first for God and then for one another. Now I ask the question, do we do this? It goes beyond willing ourselves to be doers of good. Like, rather, it's this visceral understanding of God's love for us. Like I said the, the, earlier, the first use of the word chesed was between God and his people. This is the same for us as well. God loved us. He will continue to love us. Like Ahava, do we have affection that leads to tangible sacrifice for one another? Jesus embodied this. We do not need to look any further to try to fabricate, manipulate, or abstractively create anything different. It is difficult enough for us to live this out. He loved, so we loved. He sacrificed, so we sacrifice. So this Christmas season, when we reflect on love, let us reflect on God's perfect love for us shown in Jesus, and let's treat each other with that love. This isn't a willing to. This is a transformation because of God's love. And I, I was sharing with the, with the team this morning, uh, and Shu, if you want to come up, you can come up. Uh, I was sharing with the team this morning before uh, I woke up this morning and went for a walk and just prayed. And I made my way up this flight of stairs by our house, and you could just see the sunrise, and I was just asking God, like, what do, you, what, do you, what do you want to show us? Like, what, you know, we, we come on Sundays at times, and we may hear, like, a message that may be moving, but I want us to be impacted by God's love. Like, that was my desire. And I felt like what the Lord was, was speaking to me this morning is that God this morning is aiming to restore love. And as I was watching the, the sunrise, it was going... Like I said, you guys have all seen a sunrise. It goes dark, and then it just start, the light just starts to creep in, and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful image. And I think that a lot of us here have these past hurts and these past pains. When we think about love, it's not these feelings of hopefulness and joy. There's a lot of pain attached to it. There's a lot of discontentment. There's confusion when we think about love. And my prayer this morning is that God will begin to restore that. And it happens, I believe, first by submitting and sacrificing yourself to God. Sacrificing your time, your ideals, and then submitting to a community who loves like the Father loves. But for those of you who are experiencing that, when we talk about love or when we talk about these peace or, or hope through this Advent season and you're dis disconnected with that, just know that this is an opportunity to return back. And so if we all could, we're going to do something a little different. Can everyone just stand up? And I just want to pray. I just want to pray over everyone here. So if you feel comfortable, if you could just stretch your hands out. 
and I'm just going to pray. Father, we invite you into this place, oh God. Father, I pray that your love will begin to transform our lives. God, I pray that your spirit will begin to heal and expose these spaces in our heart and in our mind and in our thoughts and in our actions that are not of you, God. Father, that we may submit that to you. God, that love becomes tangible, no longer abstract. And God, that we are a community, that we are a people who deeply loves you and loves one another. So Father, I pray that you will move. God, I pray that through this Christmas season that you will reveal yourself to us. God, as you are, as you sent your son, Jesus, to be Emmanuel, God with us until eternity. So Father, we do love you.